With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. It's Lars. Thank you for checking out my podcast and have a great day. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. On Patent law can sometimes be pretty outrageous, but patent laws are important because they protect intellectual ideas. And the fact is, America would not be what it is today. The world wouldn't be what it is today if we didn't have patent laws. The problem is... Everybody involved in patent laws tries to, well, manipulate the laws in a way that best benefits them. And I guess it surprised me to hear that Disney is one of the biggest players in that. Seton Motley joins me now, the president of the group called Less Government. How are you doing, Seton? Doing well, sir. How are you? Not too bad. So Disney is one of the biggest players in deciding what our American patent law is. I guess I would have guessed that, you know, maybe the car companies or the electronics companies would be at the, at the head of that list. Well, Disney, I've written a couple pieces where the title was basically, everyone hates intellectual property except their own. And companies like Disney, you know, they still defend the mouse, right? That's a yep. like patent, but it's a, it's a trademark. And you can't use the mouse, the Mickey Mouse, without permission from Disney. And you don't get permission from Disney. You instead get a $45 T-shirt from Disney with the mouse on it. Um, and it's Disney, but really it's big tech. Um, in 2011, they basically rewrote, they undermined the entire patent system with a 2011 uh, woefully misnamed American Vents Act. And what the, there, there's a bunch of stuff wrong with that, that uh, bill. The, the, probably one of the worst element of it is the creation of what's called the PTAB board, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. And it, it's, Basically, patent, it's a, it's a judicial 
entity inside the patent office. So it's inherently unconstitutional because you've got the executive branch pretending to be the judicial branch. And in fact, we even had a Supreme Court ruling that said, yes, the PTAB is unconstitutional. But did they abolish it? No. They added an extra layer of unconstitutionality and said the head of the uh, patent and uh, trademark office has to review the PTAB decisions. Well, no. That's that's still the executive being the judiciary. But anyway, the board sets it up where it's very easy to file for big tech companies. Rather than pay for the patents, they file 9 million appeals, slightly worded slightly differently. It's 15 different appeals on the same thing, and they cost about $200,000 each to defend against, and that's times 15. If you're a little patent guy, you're screwed. You basically forfeit your patent. And then Google or Facebook or Amazon gets it for free. And on top of that, uh, it's like over 80% of the rulings overturn the patents that the patent office just issued. And the worst, perhaps the worst part of that is the judges that are on, the, the quote-unquote judges that rule on PTAP court cases are lawyers for Apple and Google. They're Silicon Valley lawyers that take time out from their practice defending Google and defending Apple to go be judges in Google and Apple cases trying to steal patents. It's really absurd. All right, so can you make, for non-lawyers and non-technical experts, make it understandable why the America Invents Act, this thing that was passed a little over a decade ago, does damage to the patent system? Is PTAB well, the, the only PTAB problem? Board. Yeah. Right, there's the PTAB board. One other fundamentally stupid change was, for 200 years, it was first to invent. If you if you proved that you invented something, you know, if you you know you, you and you keep documents right? as you as you develop a product and have trial and error and misses, you have all this documentation. Well, they right. change it from first to invent to first to file. So what happens is Google gets wind of somebody else's invention that they've worked on for eight years, and because they've got nine trillion dollars to spend on lawyers, they file first. And it doesn't matter that the person who invented it has nine years of records proving they invented it. It's now first to file. Well, and in fact, you know, Seton, just just so people understand this, I'll give you this example. I'm not sure it's it's ever been a subject of a patent case, but there's I happen to have met the guy. He's kind of a liberal, but uh, the Leatherman tool. Right. And now virtually every knife company makes a Leatherman like tool. But the guy, Tim Leatherman, who invented this. He, took, he told his wife he was going to the basement, he was going to come up with this, he'd be done in six months. I think he told me it took him seven years to finally right. you know, get it right. And, and, and even since then, and I've got, by the way, I've got, I get no dog in the fight with them. They don't pay me any money. I do buy the tools, <laughs> but I also own some of the other tools as well. So I've, I've, I've received nothing from them for this. And as I said, Tim's kind of a, a, a screaming left-wing liberal, uh, but that's okay. Uh, he came up with something unique, and none of the knife companies wanted it until he showed that everybody in America wanted one, and virtually every person who works in a hands-on you know, trade sector job has one, yes. including people like talk show hosts like me, because I find them incredibly valuable. I'm, you know, as, when, I'm as unhandy. I'm as unhandy as anybody on the planet, and I have one. Go exactly ahead. now. Now, so what you're saying is, 
Leatherman goes down to his basement, starts coming up with it, comes up with a rough idea, starts making them, refining it, and all that. He's nowhere near the end of the six years. Somebody like Gerber or Kershaw or Benchmade or any of the other uh, knife companies says, hey, this guy's working on one of these things. We'll go in and file for a patent on a multi-tool like this. And even, even if he spends seven years and he's the first guy to invent it, they could have, in theory, filed a patent. And the minute he comes to market with it, they say, oh, by the way, we own, we own the patent on that. You're going to have to pay yes. us. Yes. Wow. They can, he spends seven years developing it. They spend seven minutes filing it, and they get it. That's the new rules. Yeah, especially if they're bigger and they've got and they've got a bunch of lawyers and deep enough pockets that they uh, that they can actually do that and keep him tied up in court. He eventually ends up saying, "Okay, fine, I'll settle for some amount of money and I'll give you my invention. No, no. Under the new under the new thing, he's got no grounds to file. Oh, wonderful. He's got no grounds to file a lawsuit because it's first to file. They filed first. All they do is look at the the file date. For the patent, they see that the big company filed first, and it, it, there's no court. There's no no court will hear his case because it doesn't matter that he's got seven years of evidence that he invented it. They filed first. End of story. Wow, I mean that's just that's that's dumb, compli- isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's very dumb, and and it, it sounds like something the new Republican Congress in January, just as a housekeeping measure, should say. Well, hey, we should go back and clean it up. Act was bipartisan. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, Seton Motley is the president of the group known as Less Government. Seton, it's always a pleasure to have you on. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Cast a vote in my Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And if you care to, tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. In the interest of full disclosure, I've never smoked cigarettes on a regular basis. I've smoked a cigarette in my lifetime. Uh, I have a cigar now and then, but I mean really now and then, one, maybe two a month, and that's about it. Uh, So I don't have any particular dog in the fight on this one. But when it comes to vaping, by the way, I don't vape either. Uh, but I don't want to set up roadblocks for other people to be able to use vape products. They are tremendously popular among some people, and they are an alternative to smoking cigarettes. So having said all that, I want to get Richard Burke on, who's executive director and spokesperson for the 21 Plus Tobacco and Vapor Retail Association. Richard, welcome back to the program after too long. I know it's been a long time. I always like talking with you, Lars. Good to hear you. Well, I enjoy talking to you as well. And this one, this one ought to have the healthcare advocates out there, the folks who want yep. people to live in a more healthy way. They should say we yep. should embrace vaping. Shouldn't they be saying that? Well, I think so. You know, vaping in some quarters has gotten a bad uh, rap because there are people who are illicit manufacturers who make illicit products that are unregulated that have uh, hurt people. Uh, but you know, manufactured products properly used actually save lives because they provide alternatives to things like cigarettes and cigars. And like you, I don't smoke or vape. I occasionally have a cigar. I had one last week. But, uh, you know, there are, are things there that um, that are within the industry that, you know, prevent the black market from taking control of the situation and uh, hurting a lot of folks. We provide um 
representation to responsible retailers who want to sell legitimate, uh, le- you know, legitimately manufactured, regulated products to people and promote their proper use and pre- preserve the rights of adults to use these products, uh, which are legal in most of the country, and uh, represent the interests of, of those customers and retailers themselves. Are they actually, are they illegal anywhere, Richard, that you know of? No. I mean, okay. obviously, if you're if you're making your own vaping products and you're putting strange ingredients in them and you're not, uh, you, you know, they're not regulated, those are illegal. But the products that you see in, you know, licensed stores are legal products that can be used anywhere. Well, and, and what, again, I want people to understand this. If somebody came to me and said, is smoking cigars healthy? I'd say, I'm never going to argue that it's a health benefit, like taking a multivitamin or something. I'm not going to say that, but I enjoy doing it, and I don't figure it, it does, does much damage to have a cigar now and then. If somebody says, sure. well, but I currently smoke cigarettes, is there an alternative? Because I've tried to quit, and it's an extraordinarily hard addiction to quit. For those people who want to quit, the British... Uh, among others, have said, hey, try vaping. The de- the, the deleterious uh, uh, health effects of vaping are about 95% less than, than the, the deleterious effects of burning, you know, burning tobacco and inhaling the smoke. You say, well, if you can eliminate 95% of the harm, isn't that a goal? Isn't that a gain? And yet America's gone exactly the other direction. And I've asked doctors, I said, is there anything inherently wrong with, uh, you know, nicotine? And they said, well, if you deliver it by inhaling smoke, it's not so good. If it's just nicotine, it's probably no more damaging than caffeine. And God knows we're not going to see the banning of coffee and tea anytime soon. At least I hope we won't. So you say, well, why don't you encourage people to do that as an alternative to smoking cigarettes? They say, no, 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 no. We want you to stop using nicotine altogether. These are absolutists. They are, to use a Democrat word, extremists, aren't they? Yep, that's right. And what they're doing now, as they try to do in Washington County, is use the argument uh, that we need to keep these products out of the hands of children. Uh, but this is just a smokescreen. What they really want to do is regulate uh, adults and uh, take action that will give the black market complete control of the market. Uh, and, and we oppose that. The association I represent these are responsible retailers. They only allow people who are 21 years of age or older on premises. So you're breaking the law if you're a minor and you walk inside. So that's not even uh, an issue uh, that you can come in, you can buy legal, regulated, uh, legitimately manufactured products, and that you can use them. If they are banned, as Washington County tried to ban them, as Kate Brown tried to ban them through her executive order, uh, then what you're going to do is give a monopoly to the people who make illicit and dangerous products, and it will cost lives and people will die. Well, so and in we fact, didn't to, a judge call them on that and say you've broken the law by trying to do what, the ban that you tried? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Didn't Lars? a judge decide that their attempt to ban was, in, was itself, in fact, illegal? That's correct, because state law says that counties can set standards for the sale of these products. And Washington County interpreted that to mean that you could, you know, ban them and that itself was a standard that you could adopt. And the lawsuit that objected to that said, no, that's not a standard. There are no standards if you ban something. You can't ban it. You can set standards for selling it, but you can't ban it. And the judge agreed with that. 
So what's the next move? Because are you going to be able to get the legislature to take action on this and finally establish that if adults want to use these products, they should be allowed to, and counties and cities and other entities shouldn't get involved in trying to ban them? Well, they already have passed a law like that. But, you know, in politics, nothing is ever over. And people who are ideologically driven are always going to assault this industry and assault the tobacco industry. And so it's the kind of thing where, you know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And so this is going to be a kind of thing where they're going to look for constant new ways to come after the industry in county government, state government. There'll probably be attempts to uh, change state law, local government. And so, you know, these association, this association, which is made mostly of small retailers that own a couple of stores, they cannot afford to sustain legal battles indefinitely. But together, they can. And so the association is going to uh, um, uh, come together, uh, retailers are coming together to represent themselves. And as they say, if the idea is to keep products safe and out of the hands of minors, uh, you will have no better ally than this association and its member retailers. If your objective is to restrict adult rights under the guise of protecting children, uh, we'll turn you, we'll oppose you at every turn. If you're trying to uh, restrict the rights of adults to use legal products, we'll fight you at every turn. Because this is America, people can make choices about their lives. If you want to be a mountain climber, there's a risk. If you want to use products, uh, there's a risk. Um, if we're going to allow government to restrict everything we do that involves any level of risk, particularly adults, then we're going to all conduct very managed lives, and nobody wants to live that way. No, I, I agree. In fact, last night I was at a candidate get-together, and one of the candidates made the point, when you see somebody else's civil rights being taken away and you say, well, I don't care about that because I'm not directly involved, you should care about people's civil rights being taken away. Because if you let them take away other people's civil rights, as Martin Niemöller reminded everybody, at some point when you object to your rights being taken away, mm -hmm. there's going to be nobody there to stand up for you. That's Richard Burke, executive director and spokesperson for the 21 Plus Tobacco and Vapor Retail Association of Oregon. Back in just a moment, we'll get to your phone calls and emails, and we'll talk about Planned Parenthood pushing puberty blockers. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls, and I'll get back to those in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. Now, I'll admit to you, because I always promise that I'll disclose if I have a dog in the fight, I've been a fan of charter schools for the better part of 30 years. And if you wonder, well, is that because you get money from charter schools? No. Uh, have I ever attended a charter school? No. Do I have any children or grandchildren attending a charter school? I don't. I just admire them from a distance because I think they produce a quality result and they provide some competition for the otherwise dismal performance of the government-run schools, otherwise known as the public schools. Always remind yourself that those are government institutions paid for with taxpayer money. And when you have no competition, well, you're free to perform lousy, uh, which an, an awful lot of the public schools do exactly that. Caleb Kruckenberg is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Caleb, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. Is it fair to say that President Biden is waging a war against the idea of charter public schools in America? 
Well, I think, unfortunately, it is. And President Biden was really clear on the campaign trail. He said he was not a fan of charter schools. And unfortunately, I think the Department of Education under his leadership has has taken that and they've they've decided that they're going to do whatever they can to undermine federal funding for these innovative programs. Would you mind reminding the folks who are listening, what was the reasoning behind Joe Biden's you know declaration that he was going to wage war on charter schools? Well, I, I think. Joe Biden has taken the position that a lot of local schools have taken and that they resent the competition because I I really think what makes charter schools successful is what you mentioned earlier. It's that they compete with public schools that aren't doing a good job. Right. And the public schools resent that because they're losing students. They're, you know, they're in competition. And I think, the president has has taken that side, and he has sided, I think, with teachers' unions that really resent this kind of um, innovative alternative. And unfortunately, because of that preference, you know, it's really the kids that attend these schools and need an educational opportunity that he's targeting. I mean, this is the thing that, that's really hard to wrap your head around, because Joe Biden is in politics. Now, he only had, uh, as a senator, run for re-election every six years, but he knew that he had to compete with people. And and in, in many cases, I wouldn't use politics as an example, but in almost every other part of life, competition brings about excellence and low cost or lower cost than it would have been. And, you know, in one size, not one size fits all, but monopoly environments are places where if you're the only folks who sell oil and if you could make a cartel in America and say we're the only place you can buy gasoline, the gas companies could charge as much as they want. But instead, they're in a competitive environment, so they have to compete with other companies that will say, buy it from us. We'll sell it to you from less for less. And our gas is better. Our oil is better. Our groceries are better. Every part of life, it's hard to find. And I look for them, Caleb for examples where you could find a competitive environment where people either say, well, we're going to charge whatever we want. That doesn't usually happen in competitive environments. Or we're going to produce a crappy uh, product, but people will still have to buy it. Competition usually wipes that out. So for Joe Biden to say, I don't want to have competition, I'm willing to let you know kids go to a one-size-fits-all government school that doesn't have any competition, it's like he's consigning them to a bad education, and he's consigning taxpayers to pay a lot of money for a bad education. I, and unfortunately, I think that's right. And, you know, I, I represent a group of charter schools in, in a lawsuit against the Department of Education in, in Michigan and Ohio. And when I look at the charter schools that's, that are the most successful in those two states, it's always places like Cincinnati or Detroit, these urban areas where the public schools have done a terrible job of providing an education for these kids. And, you know, it's not an, it's not an accident that 50% of kids in Detroit go to charter schools because the public schools just aren't cutting it. But when there's competition, they have an alternative. They have something better that they can go to. Now, the other thing I would hope to see at some point, Caleb, would be when the charter, when the conventional government school starts to lose its student population and lose the dollars as well, that they would step up their game. Is there any evidence that that happens when charter schools are present? 
Well, I think so. And, and you know, I mean, that's, that's the, the beauty of innovation and competition. I mean, if, if you talk to people in charter schools who run charter schools, they don't see this as it's us versus the public school. They see this as what can we do for these kids? How can we think of this in a way that maybe we're not constrained by what the public school has always done? That's good for everybody. And, and that is a model, I think, for, for public schools, too. They, they should look at the successful charter schools and say, what are they doing that we can do, too? And, and look, this is something that Congress recognized years ago. Um, they set up a federal charter school program that sets aside a significant amount of money every year explicitly for charter schools, earmarked for these schools to try to expand access to them across the country for kids that really need educational opportunities. Well, and, and the other piece to this, a charter school that does a bad job, that is, it doesn't fulfill its charter, is going to be forced to go out of business, isn't it? And we've seen that happen. Right, right absolutely. Okay, because yeah. they come in and they and say, this is the charter, give us the funding, but the deal is if you don't live up to your charter, you go out of business. There isn't a public school I'm aware of in America that operates under the if we fail, we lose our ability and we lose the dollars altogether. But if we did that, that can make the public schools even better. You're absolutely right. And and I think it's pretty telling as well that the way Congress set this up, this, this federal grant program, they said, come to us with an innovative program, with a good program. We'll fund you initially. And then you have to do a good job or you're, you're gone. And it's the programs that succeed. They're the ones that get funding. And, and those are the programs that get replicated. Those are the ones that get expanded. And those are supposed to be the ones that get access to this, this federal funding. Why don't I see more parents out there arguing that the public schools should be subject to the same forces that the charter schools are? Well, I actually think, you know, if, if you speak to parents whose kids go through these programs, I, I mean, it's really overwhelming, the support they have for them. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of parents recently and they say a lot of the same things that, you know, the public schools were not doing a good job and they didn't really have a good choice. They, they didn't know what they were going to do. And then, you know, suddenly they get this opportunity and, and their kids really thrive there. And I think part of it is, you know, people don't have experience with it, but it's easy to just kind of get stuck in the old way of thinking. Oh, schools, school, school, that's just the way it is. And yeah. charter schools, I think, really can change that conversation you know but Caleb, um, i'm you know, trying but, to imagine the person who moves into a new neighborhood in america they say where can i shop for my groceries and they're you know people in the neighborhood say well, there's four or five places well how about buying gasoline four or five places how about any kind of service four or five places in in any kind of neat you know medium-sized city you say how about schools uh, if you live here your kids go right there well, where are my choices no no choices at all Americans who love to have choices, it's amazing to me that they're willing to tolerate on one of the most important things they do, educating their kids, say, I have no choices. I can decide five different places to buy my groceries, but when it comes to my kids, it's one size fits all. That's Caleb Kruckenberg, who is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation that fights these kind of fights. Caleb, thanks so much. 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. You know, 
More than uh, 25 years ago, I got a chance to do a couple of tandem skydives. Now, they're kind of fun. You don't have to actually know how to do skydiving. There is a little bit of a refresher you have to take. Uh, and I'm not a, an individual skydiver, but I thought it was a lot of fun. And I kept waiting for that moment when you get in the door of the plane, uh, even though you've got an instructor with you who's done at least a 1,000 successful jumps, and you say, okay, I'm not going. I had a ball. And I would imagine that LaVon Pleasant is going to have the same experience. She joins me on the phone right now. LaVon, can you hear me all right? Yes, I can hear you. Now, LaVon, do you mind? Usually we don't talk about ladies' ages. Do you mind if I tell my audience how old you are? No, that's fine. You are one year from the century mark, and congratulations and God bless you for that. I understand that you and three of your younger friends are going to be going skydiving this weekend. That's right. Tell me about that. How, you, how did the three of you, who range in age from 75 to 99, how did you decide to all go skydiving together? Well, we happen to live in the same air, uh, retirement center in Glenmore. And you decide, have you ever done this before? No. Now, what, what are you anticipating? Is, is this something that's, I mean, I told people that the first time I did it, I've done two of them. I was ready for the moment I'd get in the door of that plane and say, okay, I'm not going. And I'd be, I'd be hanging on. Now, are, are you okay with this? You're, you're sure you're going to have no problem going tandem skydiving? Oh, I don't think I'll have any problem because I like to do things that are different. Are you kind of a daredevil? Is that the way you've been all your life, all these 99 years? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Tell me some of the other gr crazy things you've done, LaVon. Well, I've been uh, parasailing. I went on a hot air balloon. I've uh, the glider. Uh, you've done you've done all yeah, those things. Now, anything that you know, I, I'm pretty healthy, so I can do a lot of things. It sounds like it. And and were you the one who brought up the idea, or did this come from one of your friends at Glenmore Gracious uh, I Living? I believe one of our directors here. The we have a bus driver, and then we had a uh, activity director that thought about it. And then once she mentioned it, it sounded good to me. It did. Now, what are your kids? Now, hold on. You have kids, right? I have two, yes. Now, now I have, have you a daughter, told... and I had, my son passed away. But I, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I have grandkids. I want to know what your grandkids think of your plans for Sunday morning at 9 a.m., strapping on a parachute and an instructor to go out the door of that plane. Have you told them? Uh, I think my daughter's a little surprised. <laughs> did, you, did you offer to take her with you? No. My daughter's going, but my granddaughter's not. <laughs> oh, did you, did, did you offer your granddaughter and she said no? No, I didn't offer. <laughs> <laughs> you can't take the grandkids I wanna, everywhere. I want to try it first. <laughs> you want to try it first. Now, yeah. have they told you how, how high are you going to go out? Have they told you? No, I, I, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, when I, when I did it, LaVon, I, I, both times went out a little above 10,000 feet. So that means we had, we're almost two miles off the surface of the earth. And, but that meant we got a good long free fall, about 40, 45 seconds, I think. And then about oh, a four or five minutes. Oh, it, you know, when you're just falling and they say, 
People get distracted because there's a big dial in front of you that tells you your altitude, and it's unwinding like you wouldn't believe. It's just oh. zipping. And and they said people can become so fascinated with that that they forget. But I, I remember just it was a lot of fun. I wanted it to keep going, but at some point you have to pull the pull the cord and put the shoot out. You ready for that? Well, I hope somebody pulls it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I'm sure if you don't do it, the instructor on your back is going to do it. <laughs> And, and I'm told that just to get the license to be able to do that, I think instructors have to do a 1,000 successful jumps or some large number uh, before they're allowed to do it. Anything? Have any of your, uh, your uh, fellow skydivers, 75 to 99, have they had any second thoughts about this? I don't think so, no. <laughs> okay. What are you going to do to celebrate when you're all done and you're back on, on planet Earth? Oh, just have a good drink. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you like to drink, LaVon? I would prefer. I think I'd rather have a good beer. A beer. Well, that's yeah. a good way. That's a good way, and it's going to be warm this weekend, so that's probably a great way to see uh, to celebrate. Okay. Levon, it is so sweet of you to come on for a few minutes. Thanks so very much. Well, thank you for talking to me. It is my pleasure. That is Levon Pleasant, and at nine o'clock on Sunday morning, she, along with three other members from her Glenmore Gracious Li- Retirement Living, are going skydiving. And I thought that was kind of fun. Let's go to Michael. Hey, Michael, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. We're short of time, but let's get right to it. What's on your mind? I'm assuming you're talking to Michael in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Measure One Fourteen. Um, the only information I have on that is what I've heard you discuss on your uh, radio show, and I haven't heard you mention anything about it limiting the capacity of magazines. It does, but I think that's the least that that's the smallest reason to object to it. The idea of having to get a license to carry out a constitutional right, that's the biggest objection. It also, it does a number of other things, including limiting the size of magazines. Anything past 10 rounds is forbidden by our government masters if the voters happen to sign off on this. And that's a big problem as well. It's going to get a lot of law-abiding people in big trouble, and that's a bad idea. Michael, thanks for the call. It's First Amendment Friday, and you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer? They're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits. At least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Big disappointment for some of us. Special counsel John Durham had another acquittal this week in one of his trials. But was the point of those trials about prosecuting a couple of the small fry, a couple of frogs in the swamp? Or was it to shine a light on the FBI and its shady dealings with Democrats? Well, John Solomon joins me now, political commentator and founder of JustTheNews.com, to try and sort this out for us. John, welcome back. Yeah, good to be with you, Lars. 
So if I guess people could be forgiven for not paying much attention to the trial of Igor Danchenko for lying to the FBI, because most people said, who's Igor Danchenko, if they hadn't been following it like you and I have been? Uh, And they said, so who do we care that he was found not guilty? Well, I do, because I I think if you're going to prosecute people for lying to the FBI, people who lied to the FBI should be prosecuted. I, for the life of me, do not understand why the jury found he was not guilty. But there you go. But does this mean that John Durham's efforts to find some of those guilty of putting together the Russia hoax that attempted to change, and I, and I think at least change the outcome of, not if not the election, then it changed the outcome of the way the Trump presidency went. Somebody needs to go to jail for this, but the, the names I'm thinking of are more like Comey and Strzok and Page and Clinton uh, than people like Igor Danchenko. Uh, will you sort it out for me and for my audience? Yeah, listen. I don't think we're going to be measuring prison jumpsuits for those guys, but I do think what we got as a result of these trials is a much larger part of the narrative. It's not satisfying to know that there won't be accountability because it doesn't appear there's going to be any more accountability. And quite frankly, the last two trials where there was clear evidence that somebody lied, jurors in the Washington, D.C. era didn't care. They actually said it wasn't worth their time. I think that's what the jury forewoman said. I think Michael Sussman might have lied to me. That was a Clinton lawyer. They got acquitted in the summer. I just don't care. It wasn't worth my time. I think there's a lot of things that we have to step back from and evaluate that these two trials expose. One is we have a jury system in some cities where the electorate is so extreme in political because it's so one-sided that you may not be able to have fair outcomes for uh, people of their party or, quite frankly, people of the opposing party. That's an issue that I know some members of Congress are beginning to think about. Jury poll nullification because it's just simply too political and and if a political case comes up. The second part is, I think we learned an awful lot about this trial. We didn't know that the FBI was so desperate to prove the Steele dossier, they offered him a million bucks. Uh, That's called a bounty in most places. We didn't know that Igor Danchenko was on the payroll, even though he had lied and was suspected of being a Russian asset. We didn't know that the FBI's intelligence analyst told the agents handling, hey, I think he's connected to uh, Russian intelligence, you should revet him. And they said, ah, forget you. What do you know? You're just an intelligence analyst. <laughs> By the way, that same mentality is what allowed a Robert Hansen to get away with his big spy scandal two, two decades ago. It doesn't seem like the FBI changed much from one of its great spy scandals. So John Durham succeeded in informing the court of public opinion about some very serious problems, sins, pro- and uh, irregularities in the FBI. And in the process, he lost the case. And I think part of the equation people I've been talking to who watched the case said is people heard so much about what the FBI did wrong. He's like, why am I punishing this guy? Shouldn't the FBI be on trial? Maybe that was uh, John Durham's intention all along. But the lack of accountability will not be uh, satisfying to anyone who cares about law and order. Well, so where does the Durham investigation go after or after here? I understand he's got his budget, but does it go yeah. anywhere? Uh, I'm getting a strong indication from my reporting that they're done with grand jury and that they're going to get to the report and wrap things up. There's an interesting sequel to John Durham. And again, it could be uh, meaningless or it could be really, really valuable. A lot of the people I've been talking to, people coming on my show, people I've been interviewing for stories, and I'm talking about like former executives of the FBI, like Kevin Brock, a very expected, respected voice at all sides of the FBI, listened to him as a retiree. They're saying it is time for a church committee-like investigation, a nonpartisan, above all of the bickering, and do what we did in the 1970s when we had to expunge from the FBI the legacy of J. Edgar Hoover and all those CIA crimes that were exposed. If that is the outcome, if Durham puts enough facts in there that we could have a 
really hefty, smart, non-above-politics review of what's wrong with the FBI. Maybe we have a chance of restoring some public trust to the FBI. If not, I fear that the FBI will not be trusted by more than half this country going forward. I don't trust them right now. And and I guess yeah. that seems like a pretty th- uh, thin soup, you know, to get to be told uh, there are major institutions of the government, including the FBI and perhaps the CIA and other agencies, that we don't have any reason to trust at this point, and nobody is going to jail for it, and nobody is getting punished, and nothing much is going to change. Why should we have faith if that's the outcome? Yeah, listen, we're, we're built on an institution or a, a, a principle of law and order in this country, which means if you do something wrong, there's punishment. If you do something right, there's reward. It appears that we rewarded those who did wrong and we punished those who did right. And I think at the end of the day, you know, I had this interview earlier this week. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, Lars, but I got Steve Friend, the FBI whistleblower from Florida, who's blown the whistle on possible civil liberty violations of the January 6th defendants. And he said something unbelievably profound to me. I can't get these words out of my head. He said the FBI designed the January 6th investigation so that the process is the punishment, meaning even if you're not guilty, going through and having your neighborhood raided and your house raided and you're bankrupted for your lawyer fees, that that may be part of the punishment. If that's how we're thinking in law enforcement, we've broken one of the great jurisprudence systems in all of the world. Well, because, John, some of the punishment that's happening and still happening, there are still some people locked up from J6. And for the most part, most of the crimes of J6, there were some assaults, uh, some, you know, and, and some people were found not guilty. Some people were found guilty. Most of the rest of it was basically the federal government version of trespass. In other words, yeah. you, you trespassed on some property when you didn't have permission to be there. And you say, you sit in jail for a year, uh, in, in sometimes incommunicado, not able to communicate with family and friends and all that, for a year, for trespass? Where does that happen? It sounds like the kind of thing you hear about happening in China or Cuba or Russia, where political opponents of the ruling class get sent off to a gulag somewhere, and you say, what they do? Well, they trespassed. Well, how do, how do you lock somebody up for that? That's happening here? Yeah, and listen, there was an interesting moment in the Steve Friend interview where Steve Friend said, listen, he's been told by some of his bosses before he was suspended that there's an idea to redefine what constitutes capital to include the grassy areas outside and call that a restricted oh area. God. And then prosecute a whole lot more people, people who never went in the building. Most Americans are going to say, what are we doing with that sort of mentality? We've got to stop that sort of mentality. I think a lot of people say that. You see it in the polling data now. People think we have taken this too far. There was an incredible poll this weekend that said that Democrats have taken the punishment of Republicans far too far when it comes to law enforcement. Well, and then, uh, and maybe we'll talk about this next week, $34 million is what they want to prosecute the remaining people in the, who are accused of J6 offenses. $34 yeah. million dollars to prosecute some assault cases and some trespassing cases? That just sounds insane. If you want to read the full the full meal deal, it's justthenews.com. John Solomon is the founder of it. If you want to send me an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. If you want to dial in, it's 866-439-5277. And, of course, you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, uh, and I'm glad to take your calls. We'll get to your calls here in just a moment. But I want to talk about energy because energy is such a front and center issue. I know a lot of the attention is being paid to Joe Biden's massive giveaway, half a trillion dollars to pay off some of the student debt that is owed by 
students who went to college and got a degree that wasn't worth it because it didn't lead to a job or a career that would allow them to easily pay it back. So if you did do that, if you went out and became a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, an accountant, any of the 101 professions that would actually lead to a decent paying job, you're not complaining about your student loans. I mean, I'm sure you'd rather have somebody else pay them off if you could arrange that. But you might actually have a sense that that's immoral to say, I got the benefit out of the degree, but I'd like you to pay the tab. I don't think that's ever moral or ethical, and it shouldn't be legal. But I, I wanted to ask about this. Um, do, 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 do you, are you aware of the fact that that Inflation Reduction Act, they kept renaming the darn thing. It started out as the Green New Deal, and then it became Build Back Broke or Build Back Better. And then they said, oh, no, no, we're going to call it the Inflation Reduction Act because everybody's worried about inflation. So we'll just say that something is likely to drive inflation is actually going to reduce inflation. And even if it's not true, if we get enough people to believe it for long enough, we can survive the next election cycle. That seems to be the logic that the Biden White House is engaging. But an enormous amount of the spending that is spelled out in that so-called Inflation Reduction Act, because it's mostly about raising taxes and spending money. Hundreds of billions of dollars is slated to be spent on so-called green energy. Once again, green energy sounds all warm and fuzzy. That's great. The problem is an awful lot of Americans have said to themselves, don't I hear that there are weaknesses in America's electric grid? Which, if you think about it for a moment, is kind of an astounding thing. I mean, if somebody told you that the electric grid in Saddam Hussein's Iraq was terribly, um, terribly uh, damaged, that that, uh, Saddam Hussein barely kept the lights on in his old hometown of Tikrit. And then if somebody said, well, in places like Sudan or Yemen, the power isn't on all the time. South Africa right now is dealing with big problems because they have such an uncertain electric grid and such uncertain supply It's actually driving people to buy solar panels saying we can't afford not to have energy. So we're going to make sure we can generate our own. The electric grid isn't trustworthy. But when you say we might have to distrust the electric grid of a modern state like the state of California, you'd say, no, no, that that can't be the case. Well, the guy who knows the lowdown on all of this is Steve Miller, who's a reporter with Real Clear Investigations. And I read his latest piece on the out of date hybrid power grid in California that is already failing even as people like Gavin Newsom and the, the the California legislature in Sacramento are saying we want everybody to use electricity for everything including your car even though you've got a grid that is already starting to fall apart right now Mr. Miller welcome back to the program thanks for having me I'm going to recommend that people go to real clear investigations and read the whole piece because it's very detailed but give us the highlights first Uh, California's power grid can't even handle the new power that's coming online, like solar and wind? They've brought on so much solar and wind in a hurry, and they failed to to provide the transmission for that. They forgot about that, or actually they've known about it for years, that they had to to have a way to, to transmit this power. They just, it's very, very complicated, very difficult, very bureaucratic, and so they just went ahead and built the solar and wind uh, plants without really even building enough transmission. So they're they're producing so much energy at certain points in the year that they have to they have to stop the solar and wind generation because they can't they have nothing to do with they they have they can't do anything with it. 
Steve, is that why occasionally I hear calls from people saying, I see all these windmills in my state, not just California, but other states, but a lot of them aren't turning even when the wind is blowing. Is that why we're seeing that kind of phenomena? That is correct, yeah. It's it's called curtailing, and they just have to stop. In, in the state of California, they've They've uh, they've tripled the amount of curtailed renewable energy between 2018 and 2021. How much is it? And I mean, is there a way of expressing this in a way that average folks like me and my audience could understand? How much wind are they saying? Uh, well, no, no, we, we 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 love to have it, but we have no way to get it to to where people can use it. So just don't make it. In in April, um, using a, the formula that the feds use, they curtailed enough energy to provide electricity to 55,000 American homes for a year. For a year? Yeah. So That's a lot of energy. It is, and, and I guess what's behind it is, if I'm correct, tens of billions of dollars of mostly subsidized things like windmills and solar panels. So you've already paid to produce all this, but you can't make use of the electricity, so they just turn them off. So all of that investment correct. is wasted as well. That's correct, yeah. And, and it shouldn't, shouldn't be ignored, too, that remember this whole dream of, of renewables and this uh, renewable electricity is going to make the price of electricity cheaper. Um, the rate of California's, the increase in California residential uh, has increased 19% in the past year compared to 97% nationally. So people are paying big electric bills. They're being told by electric vehicles. In many communities, they're saying you can't use natural gas. You're going to have to use electric to heat your home, to cook your food, to do all those other things. And that's only if they can get the electricity to them. Now, when you describe the grid, you said it was complicated. What makes it so complicated to put up more wires and more transformers and more substations and all the things that it would take to get this, this power to the people who would actually use it? And why aren't they getting it done? Well, to build the, the solar plants and, and wind plants are a little easier to get the uh, get approval for. But when you have transmission lines, they have to go over all kinds of different kinds of property, public, private, you know, commercial, residential. They, they, it's very, very difficult. You also have to go to a public utility to build it and then to the California Energy Commission and a bunch of other commissions and, and then cities in some cases, counties, they have to approve all this. And so it takes all that. And uh, as we, in the story, you'll see an energy consultant tells us there's just a lot of, a lot of hoopla you have to go through. And there's no, is there any guarantee that if you say we need this transmission line, it's going to cost a bucket of money, uh, but we'll go to the PUC uh, and all these other boards and they'll say yes, and they'll let us add that cost to the already dramatically increasing cost of electricity. Is, is there any guarantee that they'll get a yes? Uh, there's no guarantee they'll get a yes because you run into all kinds of things. Think about even right-of-way conflicts when you're building a transmission line. Uh, you know, that can hold up a transmission line for, uh, you know, they can hold it up in court for a long time. And so in the meantime, you've got all this energy. You've got people are saying increase the energy demands of a state that already consumes a lot of it and, and increase it some more by adding on what, hundreds of thousands, millions of new vehicles that are now going to be mandated, cannot be gas, cannot be diesel, they have to be electric. You've got to read this whole story. It's told by Steve Miller, who's a reporter at RealClearInvestigations.com. Steve, thanks so much. I appreciate the time. When we come back, I want to get your phone calls and emails, and I want to tell you about a real battery car boondoggle. Are you ready for a $100 per fill-up cost? 
for batteries. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, this week we saw something really extraordinary, although kind of expected in some ways. I know, extraordinary, but expected. We had both Joe Biden and his estimable vice president, Kamala Harris, both declare that there was zero inflation last month. And as I pointed out to you, uh, Joe is a little bit dim, so maybe I can cut him some slack, but Kamala Harris should know better. There wasn't zero inflation. It was 8.5% inflation, which is punishing inflation. The fact that it didn't go higher than 8.5% in July, didn't go lower, but just, just stayed about where it was, uh, I guess is notable, but that's not zero inflation. It just means it didn't get much worse for one month, although some of us still expect double digits by this fall because of all the indicators that we've seen. So what's that going to do to America's small businesses? I thought I'd put that question to Elaine Parker, who's president of the Job Creators Network Foundation. Elaine, welcome back. Hey, Lars. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, I run a small business, but it's a radio show, and I have three producers, and the product we have goes out at the speed of light, so we don't have any supply chain issues for us. But I feel for all the people who are in retail business because they've got increased employment costs of their staff, they've got supply chain issues, and they've got massive inflation, and of course they've had energy prices go up, which affect them for both delivering the product and the electricity they have to buy and everything else. What are those small businesses going to do with massive inflation like this? Do they just automatically pass it along to customers, knowing that they're going to lose a lot of their customers when they do? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, small business is definitely taking it on the chin. They've continued to take it on the chin uh, since the pandemic. Um, and we have a poll that we run every month called the Small Business IQ, and it is at one of the lowest levels since we started running this poll. It's actually down 17% there. It's an optimism index that we run. It's down 17% from this time last year, um, with inflation being their greatest concern. No other issue is actually rated this high in the history of the poll as inflation has. Um, and, and 55% of small businesses say that, that they have had to increase uh, customer prices just as a result of inflation. And two-thirds of small businesses say that Biden's proposed tax increases are going to hurt the small business community. Um, so all of these things, whether it's the threats of the, of the high taxes, which are currently being voted on, of course, there's no stopping it at this point. It's, it's, uh, they are passing votes right now. Um, the inflation rate, which, yes, you're right, was not zero percent. I think my jaw dropped when I heard him say that. I, I just... I, I cannot believe that he can stand there with a straight face. And and all I can think of is, as the president, you have to look at what your advisors are telling you and make some decision on your own and say, that's not right. I can't say that. That doesn't even make sense to me. And that's when you start to ask your question, the question of who is running the show here. I mean, that's not even Economics 101. People are suffering, and they're literally lying and gaslighting the American public over this. Yeah, because, uh, and, and it is gaslighting, because is Joe just simply saying, well, what do I tell people with the economy in this kind of state? And his advisors say, just tell them inflation didn't increase last month. And and any smart person would say, hold on, it was prices were up 8.5%. They didn't go to 9 they didn't go to 10 but the, they were still at 8.5% up from a year before. 
And Elaine, the other piece that I think is deceptive is we're, you're using numbers that are 12 month numbers, right? And, and so in right. January of last year, inflation was at about 2% when Trump left and Biden came in. So the 12 month figures when he started to hit, you know, January of this year looked pretty stunning. But as we get to June and July of last year, inflation was already clocking up to four and 5%, which makes the numbers look better this year because the 12 month number is rolling out you know, the lower numbers and rolling in the higher numbers. So you're starting from a higher basis, you know, and, and, and what it does, it makes it look better. If you actually clocked it from January of last year to now to have gone from 2% or just below 2% to eight and a half percent is 400% inflation. I mean, we've, we've seen prices go up by 400 or go up by 300%. They are now 400% of what they were in, in January of last year with that kind of increase. And, and so, does Joe just say, oh, okay, that sounds like a good answer, even though it's high, it's either highly deceptive or one that people will see right through and say, you're nuts. I was at the grocery store last week, Mr. President. Inflation was not zero last month. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, all the talk from, from uh, President Biden and the White House about this robust economy and even throwing in 0% inflation, it's not shared by the small business community. 56, our poll found that 56% of businesses are concerned that the current economics are going to force them to close. What's even more interesting, Lars, is that that number jumps to 73% for minority-owned businesses and 76% for female-owned businesses. The disconnect between Biden and small businesses is so huge, and they want to run around this month claiming mission accomplished because inflation moderated just a little bit. Well, you know why it moderated? Because gas prices have come down. But you know why they've come down? Because people have made decisions not to drive, and the, the demand went down. That's economics 101. When the demand goes down, the prices come down. When the demand goes high, the prices go high. Yeah, and the other thing is I'm trying to imagine being a retailer who says, look, I'm paying a whole lot more for my employees, a whole lot more for deliveries. Supply is short. I should be able to charge more. But I'm also aware that the average American family is shelling out about an extra $700 a month because of inflation to buy the same stuff they bought last year. So if I go to my customers and say, by the way, I know that you're out an extra 700 a month just to tread water and stay at the same position you were last month or last year, but I'm going to raise prices on you. They know that some of those customers are going to say, there's a breaking point. I don't have the extra money. I'm going to have to stop buying your product or I'm going to have to shift to something else. And, and we've already seen that happen. You know, we've seen beef prices go up. And so people shift to chicken, which drives chicken prices up. And the people who are eating chicken, I guess, are eating top ramen about now. I remember ramen noodles in college when I was four, too. <laughs> That's the only time people eat it. So, uh, you know, and, exactly. and so, so, so can that small retailer say, well, I just have to pass the cost along? Because if they realize if I raise my prices 10%, but I lose 15 or 20% of my customers, I'm no further ahead, except I've driven, driven some of my customers away. And at some point, the pinch point comes when they say, I can't continue to operate this business because I can't both pay my employees, pay for these increased costs, drive my customers away, lose sales. So I'm better off just to shut the thing down uh, and, and hand the keys over to the bank. 
Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, again, the, the small business drives this economy. We're, we they are the they are the backbone of this country. There's there's 30 million small business owners, and they employ 60 million people. And the Biden administration is completely tone deaf when it comes to their needs and what is happening. And they are just driving towards this climate change. Um, philosophy and and only focus on that. I I really don't think they care what is happening in the economy right now. I really think that their only focus is getting this climate change bill through and the taxes increase on everybody to pay for it and and sticking 87,000 IRS agents um, on our small business community because they can claim that it's it's billionaires all they want that they're going after. There's only 724 billionaires in the entire country, and they now have 87,000 new agents. They're not going after the rich. Elena, I'm up against a break, but as you and I were talking just at this moment, there is joy in Mudville. The House has passed the Democrats' <laughs> health care ta- tax and climate bill, otherwise known as Build Back Broke, or known as the, infra- or the Inflation Reduction Bill. That's Elaine Parker. Elaine, thank you very much. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and it's a pleasure to be with you. I want to get to your phone calls here because I think I'm kind of curious about what this caller has to ask about. Uh, David, welcome to the program. You had a question to pose for me, and I'd be glad to take it on. I mean, I, I do that for almost anybody who'd call the show, but what's on your mind? Hey, Lars. I've listened to your show for several years ago, and first time calling. Uh, enjoy listening to you. And my question was, what has ever happened to the hydrogen vehicles that were ran on hydrogen? Because I thought at the time it was a great idea. It's very easy to make hydrogen. And whatever happened to that? Well, first, people, I think people are, are, I mean, it's a very intriguing idea. Okay, let's start with that. And in, in high school, when I was a debater, one year we debated energy topics for a year. They, they have national debate topics, and, and energy was one of them. And we had an, a hydrogen case. But there's something you should know about hydrogen as a fuel. Do you know where I can find a hydrogen well? Well, no. Is there but any such thing? In, I don't believe there's a hydrogen well. but No, there's not. Um, so if, 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 if you were out of gas in your car... You know those familiar red gas cans you can buy? I mean, most of us have a few of them sitting around, you know, as backup or to fuel the, you know, the, the power tools that we use. If I hand you the empty can, can you, can you fuel your car from it? Yes. You can. I'll tell you really, how. Really, I hand you an empty you can. What are you going to put in your car? Well, you would need electricity, water, which is H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Right. And electricity. Yeah, and the electric. So all the hydrogen does is carry the energy, right? Right. Okay. So if you had a hydrogen car right now, you'd say, "See, I've got a car. It runs on hydrogen." Since there are no hydrogen wells, you have to create the hydrogen. Now, the fastest way to make it is out of natural gas, which the greenies are not going to allow, uh, because you can do what's called reformation of natural gas into hydrogen it also produces methane and a few other things but you can fuel things that run on hydrogen from that but the energy has to come from somewhere what i was comparing the empty gas can to is that hydrogen carries energy but you've got to put the energy in there to begin with it'd be like me handing you an 
you know, a car battery that's been run flat and say, go ahead, start your car with that. And you go, no, you got to put some electricity in it. That's what you have to wouldn't, do. Wouldn't you just need water? A little no, you of, need, no, the electricity is the key part, David. How, where do you get the energy that creates the hydrogen? Well, the electricity splits the molecules of no, uh, I, I, water. No, no, David, David, I understand the, the physics of it. I've done it myself in, in the lab. I mean, I can split okay. water into oxygen and hydrogen, but you've got to put electricity in. Where are you going to get correct. the electricity? Well, you would have a car battery, correct? <laughs> David, you're, you're missing something here. I give you a brand new hydrogen-powered car, but it has an empty tank. Where do you get the energy that you create the hydrogen with to fuel your hydrogen car? And you say from electricity. Two-thirds of America's electricity comes from fossil fuels, and they're shutting down those fossil fuel plants just as fast as they can. All the hydrogen acts as is a battery for the car, basically, it, that, that you're allowed to store energy in the form of hydrogen, but you've got to make it first. And there are two basic ways to make it. One is from massive amounts of electricity. And then you've got to build all the infrastructure for creating all that hydrogen. But the biggest problem is the electricity. Where do you get the energy? So are you saying that it would require more fuel to make the batteries and no. apps in the vehicles? No. What you're no. Saying? No. If you have a hydrogen-powered car, you can take an ordinary gasoline engine and convert it to run on natural gas, to run on propane, or to run on hydrogen. It's a little more complicated because hydrogen's a very small molecule. It likes to escape. So you have to have you know, storage that will allow you to do that. But, David, you've got to make the hydrogen first, and that takes energy. So if you said, we, we have all these hydrogen cars, I said, where are you going to get the power to run them? And you go, well, you just... Plug into a wall outlet. No, the electricity has to come from somewhere, David. Well, right. So the, so I, I'm not sure if you're, obviously, if you've worked in the lab, have you ever used or, or converted a vehicle into hydrogen and making a hydrogen motor? No, I haven't. But there are, car, there are car companies that have done it running. You can run an engine on all kinds of things. You can run it on natural right. gas. You can run it on propane. You can run it on basically any kind of gas that will burn. Hydrogen will burn. Now, you can run it through a fuel cell. That, that converts the hydrogen and oxygen back into electricity with very few moving parts. But you've got to make the hydrogen first. And the hydrogen has to be created using energy. There are, a couple, there are actually three ways to do it. One is electrolysis that you already mentioned. One is reforming right. natural gas. And the third one uses nuclear power, where if you heat water to a certain temperature, it will actually break the molecular bonds into both hydrogen and, and oxygen. You break the water, so it becomes hydrogen and oxygen. But you've got to have the energy that does that. And all of the greenies have said, you're going to have less electricity. We're shutting down fossil fuels, and that's two-thirds of our electric grid right now. The Greenies do not want you to build any new nuclear plants, and they don't want you to use natural gas and turn that into hydrogen. So where are you going to get the hydrogen? I see, and I think it's maybe it's just a, a, a misunderstanding with, with the making of the hydrogen and the energy that you're asking where it's coming from. Yeah, it has to come from somewhere, David, and the Greenies have decided to cut off every source we have for energy. You got the Lars Larson Show. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. 
You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Although, as I said, yesterday's election was not exactly a pleasure. So I thought maybe we would talk about it for a moment with Sean Spicer, Commander Sean Spicer, U.S. Navy, former White House press secretary for President Trump and the host of Spicer and Company on Newsmax TV and the author of an upcoming book. Maybe that means it's not finished yet. We'll have to ask Sean about that. Radical Nation. How are you doing, Sean? I'm good, Lars. How are you? Oh, I'd be doing better if we'd had a big red wave instead of a, uh, I think somebody characterized it as a red splish splash yesterday in the election. And I I just, I don't understand Americans saying we're not happy with where the country's going, but but not doing a a fairly major change in direction as far as leadership. Uh, Can you put some perspective on that? I have to say, I just got off the set, uh, my show, uh, Newsmax, Western Company, and I had Ben Quayle on, former congressman from Arizona, and I said, I, I don't get it. I said, you guys, more than anybody, live uh, immigration. You've got inflation. You've got crime. But, I mean, you see immigration in a way that most of us don't even fathom, and yet you you know, you know, you didn't sweep these folks out you know, in an epic way. I, I know that, obviously, all the votes haven't been calculated, but I, I just would have thought that there would have been no way that, that Terry Lake didn't win overwhelmingly and that Mark Kelly been kicked out of the Senate. So I, I'm with you. I just don't understand uh, if, if – and he said the same thing. Arizona's changing. There's a lot of people that moved in from California and, and other places and that the demographics are just shifting. And I, I said, I, I don't – I get it, but I, I just – I can't believe that anybody can look themselves in the in the face and say, "Yeah, let's keep this thing going." Whether it's in Arizona or Pennsylvania, for that matter. Uh, so I, I, it, it made me realize where I definitely don't want to live right now. Yeah, and and there are a number of places. Although I just saw in the last couple of minutes, uh, uh, we've seen a flip in uh, Colorado. We've seen a flip in New Jersey, of all places. A flip to Republican Malinowski out replaced. And, and so there was some good news, and there was some rejection of the old leadership, but not nearly enough, although it sounds like the Republicans will end up with a bare majority in the Senate and a bare majority in the House. Would you agree? Well, look, I think that the, the House is obviously, I, I think the House is a done deal. Not, you know, it, it's, it's slowly getting there, but it will get there. Uh, so that Kevin McCarthy likely will be the Speaker of the House. We'll have the majority of the Biden agenda will be dead. Uh, that is at least the saving grace. Uh, that is, that keeps me excited just to know that, that we stop that. And that's, you know, constitutionally, that means the, um, you know, the, the, the spending will stop. They can at least put some stuff on, uh, get some, get some issues with immigration and other things. The Senate, I, I, I you know, it, it's going to be tight. There's no question Georgia's going to a recount. Um, if you live in Georgia, get a bigger turkey because this is going to be one heck of a runoff. Um, you know, so, um, I, I, I'm not convinced that, that we're going to pull out the Senate. I still think there's hope. I, I'm not going to give up hope, but uh, it's, the House is obviously a lot more, uh, a lot more promising. Well, at least, at least on the House side, if you've got the committees, if you've got the committee chairs and you can move some bills, you can get some of that done, whether the Senate gets to that point or not. But I also worry that in the Senate, we've got at least a couple of squishy Republicans that can't be trusted uh, not to, defe- to defect to the other side. Right. I mean, that was my thing. I, I'd actually hoped that we would get 53, 54 seats because you've got Susan Collins and, and Lisa Murkowski, 
that are going to be the Joe Manchins of the Republican Party and hold everything hostage when it comes to anything of, of a serious nature. Uh, that was my concern there. So, uh, you know, that 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 concerns me. But now I'll take anything I can get right now to stop this agenda. So if, if we can get a simple majority, that's at least better than nothing, because um, the the nominations process in the Senate is where I'm also concerned, stopping some of these radical nominees from getting into the key ad agencies and departments is also important. Well, the spe speaking of radicals, what is rad what's the premise of radical nation since I don't have my copy yet? So uh, you can go to Amazon and get your copy of Radical Nation. It basically goes through um, one of the things that I think there was a misnomer about Joe Biden. So the Radical Nation is about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's plan to to radicalize America. And I think the problem is, is that if you listen to the mainstream media, you get the sense that Joe Biden is this pragmatic guy that wants to mainstream things. And at the end of the day, if you just listen to his words, the people he's appointed and the agenda and executive orders that he's undertaken, you realize he has a radical plan to transform this country. And I lay it all out for people, not like Sean Spicer says this, and this is what I believe. And here's my hypothesis. It's literally, here's his words. Here's what he said. Here are the people he's appointed. Here are the executive orders that he signed. And I, and, and so it's not something that's up for dispute. I basically take his own words. He said, quote, I want to be the most progressive president ever. He, you know, the, I go through all of these policies and say, folks, this isn't Sean Spicer's, you know, idea of what I think he's going to do or say. This is his own words. These are the people he's appointed. These are the executive actions he has signed. This is the proposals that he's put forward either on paper or, you know, or, or tweeted about or whatever. And you need to understand this because so many times people say, oh, I know Joe Biden. He's been in Washington for 50 years. He's a nice guy. He's a pragmatic guy. He's a deal maker. And the answer is, is that that may be kind of true to some extent who he was. But I think Biden understands more than anybody that he, he needs a legacy. And his legacy is to become the most progressive president since Roosevelt. Um, and, and so to do that, he has to do it on a number of fronts. Um, whether it's through executive orders and action or appointments. But I, I just think that people have to wake up and understand that this isn't Amtrak Joe with his lunch pail um, from, from, you know, uh, from Scranton and Delaware uh, that's coming in and trying to heal the nation. Listen to what he has said. He lays out his whole agenda, and I just put it out there for people and say, read this, then tell me what you think. Well, and Sean, you may have talked about this on Spicer and Company. I'm talking to Sean Spicer, the author most recently of Radical Nation. But Joe, in this press conference a couple of hours ago, uh, a few hours ago, he, he literally was asked by a reporter, 75% of the country thinks we're headed the wrong direction. What are you going to change? And he just says flat out, nothing. 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 Uh, wh yeah. What in the world? But, what in the, but, but that goes back to the point. He understands that he has a finite amount of time. He's going to be a one-term president. That being said, if you know that, then why not shoot as many shot, you know, put as many shots on goal as possible? He wants to transform this country so that the new standard for the progressive left is Biden, so that it's not it's not TR, it's not Roosevelt. This is this is why you have to understand this, so that when people say, "Oh, that's not the Biden I knew," I I've watched this guy for whatever years that you have to understand it and you want, and that's why part of my point is people need to argue with facts and not just rhetoric and say, oh, he's a nice guy, he's a bad guy, he was whatever. I lay it all out in a book for people, and if, they want to, if you want to understand who he is, read it and then say to yourself, okay, now when someone comes up to me and says, oh, Biden's a good guy, I go, okay, really? Because here's what I know about him.
Yeah, exactly right. Sean, thanks so much. I appreciate the time, and uh, good luck to you. Spicer and Company is where you can find him on Newsmax. His new book is called Radical Nation. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. And if you care to, vote in our Twitter poll who ought to be the Republican majority head in the new House of Representatives. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to start with a question. Would you allow your child at the ripe old age of 11 to perform in a drag queen event? And would you allow them to perform in front of an all-ages audience? And if you want a second question, would you take your child to an all-ages event featuring an 11-year-old drag queen? And do you think it's appropriate for any parent to do that kind of thing? We're going to get into that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you here for some honestly provocative talk radio. And I'm glad to take your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you're a naysayer, and on this subject and some of the others we have planned today, I might just get a few naysayers. You go right to the head of the line. You can also vote in our Twitter poll. I'll give you the details on that in just a bit. You'll find the Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show if you can tolerate Twitter. And if you don't like Twitter, you can vote on the same question with the same vote counting at LarsLarson.com. We posted two places because we know that, like me, some of you are not that crazy about Twitter. Although it sounds like Elon Musk might end up owning the whole show within a few weeks. And boy, do I think that is going to bring about some changes. Now, about drag queens. I'm not just asking this as a rhetorical question. I'm asking here in the Pacific Northwest, if you're listening on the Radio Northwest Network, we appreciate you doing that, serving the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for the past 22 and a half years. This is happening right in the Pacific Northwest. But about this drag queen event. Now, some of us, I'd I'd be lying to you if I'd said I've never been to one. I've actually been, uh, as an adult, to an event that featured some drag performers. It was decades ago. And I think for adults to perform that way and for adults to come in the audience, I don't really see the problem. It's not exactly my cup of tea, but I've been to one. Now, my question is, would you ever put your child in that kind of situation, number one? Number two, would you take your child to such an event so that they could watch the event? Uh, Do you think it might encourage your child to want to do that? Do you think it normalizes the idea that an 11-year-old boy could dress up in sexualized dress as a girl and then go perform for a mixed audience of both children and adults. Now, the guy who knows this is happening because it's happening right in his town is our friend Bill London, who has his own great talk show on one of our affiliate stations, KPNW, in Eugene, Oregon. Bill, welcome to the program. And this is happening at a familiar pub in your town. Do you mind telling us a bit about Old Nick's Pub and what the heck is going on there? Well, Old Nick's Pub publicizes itself as a Victorian Gothic pub. And essentially, it's, as I told you earlier, uh, it's pretty much Eugene. Um, Everything from, you know, BDSM shows to Drag Queen Storytime, which is the event that's coming up this weekend featuring the 11-year-old drag queen, and a variety of things like that, it's well-known in the community as being typically Eugene. 
Um, and that's what's going to be happening is this 11-year-old Vanellope Craving is going to be, that's her stage name, is going to be performing there uh, this coming weekend. And there's a number of people, and it's got national and kind of international coverage that it was going to be going on. Um, the Daily Mail, among others, in Great Britain is doing yeah. a story, so it's international at this point. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, you're finding it everywhere, and it just kind of continues to grow. Um, it's kind of interesting looking at the Facebook page for that particular establishment, Old Nick's, is really a lot of, well, I think some of it is gaslighting, where people that look at that and go, okay, that's just creepy and wrong. They're saying that, you know, it's white supremacists and uh, nationalists and so on. I mean, you go read the post, you can see them there yourself by the establishment. Now, hold on. White? And, wh- where where did race come into it? Vanellope Craving, uh, as that, the, the, the 11-year-old portrays himself or herself, is a little white girl, herself. isn't she? Yes. And my problem with it, you know, is that I, for the same reason that I don't like child beauty pageants because i I do believe there there is an element of sexualization of children and i just don't like that idea and you know there are people that are in the audience that are definitely kind of twisted that are going to be there and sexualizing this child. And it's the same thing, like I said, with child beauty pageants. I have a problem with it for the exact same reason. Well, I do um, as well, but so let me throw one more element in. This Vanellope, uh, Vanellope, yes. Vanellope Craving has a Venmo account and apparently a Cash App account where apparently adults send her tips, him, her. This is a little boy dressed up as a girl, just to be clear, because pronouns get confusing these days. They send her cash tips, and apparently there there are pictures. I've looked at the website for her uh, her performances showing her on stage being showered with dollars. So it's not just sexualizing a child, but it's suggesting if you... It's commercializing. You perform, it's commercializing. It's saying you get paid money for dressing up this way for adults. Couldn't agree with you more. I, it's just creepy to me. And I think a lot of people like me, it's creepy to them on just a number of different levels. Um, I, I think another thing that really has a number of people just scratching their heads is the fact they call it a family event. So, you know, bring the kids, bring whomever, grandpa, grandma, your brother, the uncle, the neighbors, you know, it's it's a family event. And like I said, it just reeks of creepiness Uh, there's nothing they're doing that's illegal it's just the idea of it comes across as just creepy and strange and sickening it does to me as well and i and i'm just curious the mom in this case is sunshine ray mcpherson who describes herself i guess you can use that pronoun as a drag mom and the handler for her 11 year old drag queen vanellope uh, I, I guess maybe it doesn't cross the line into child abuse to sexualize your child that way and then offer her to uh, offer her up to be pr- to perform for money in front of adults. But as you said, it comes so close to that line 
And it's hard for me to imagine parents who would say, well, let's take our son or daughter down to see this performance. Maybe they'll be inspired by it. That starts to cross toward that line called grooming. I would agree with that. The, the one advantage that I see to this being in a bar is that it's not in a public school where parents won't know about it until after the fact and have no say over it. Yep. Or a library. Because or it a is community called, library. Because it, yeah. yeah, because it is called Drag Queen Story Time. So, I mean, if there's any advantage to it, well, at least it's not in a school or in a library and the like, as you mentioned. Absolutely right. That's Bill London. He does his own talk show on one of our affiliate stations, KPNW. Pleasure to be with you. Glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. In a moment, I'll talk about how some judges and a governor are stealing your right to vote. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'll get back to your phone calls and emails shortly. It is Conspiracy Theory Thursday. And there's a conspiracy going on, although I'm not sure my friend Brian Westbrook, who's our tech expert, and you can find what he writes at brianwestbrook.com. I'm not sure, Brian, I can call it a conspiracy when, in fact, it's publicly known now that one of the biggest country uh, companies literally in the world, Apple Computer, you know, they sell computers, they, they sell pa uh, iPads, they sell, you know, laptop computers, they sell uh, all kinds of other gizmos. And, and in fact, I even use some of them, although I have a good, solid, honest Android phone instead of the, uh, the cult phone that Apple sells. But they have now decided to do something that I consider kowtowing to the Chinese communists. And here's what they're doing. Uh, welcome to the show, by the way, Brian. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's great to be here, Lars. Well, you know, I, you know that I got a soft spot for Taipei. I was born there. And, uh, and yeah. Nancy Pelosi was just there, and I was kind of proud of her. And I actually said she, she did the right thing by visiting. And mm -hmm. the Joe Biden White House couldn't get its messaging straight on it. And right after that, I found out, that they're, you know, Taiwan makes a tremendous amount of electronics. In fact, I think they might be per capita the biggest electronics exporter on planet Earth. You know, they make a lot of chips, they make a lot of computers, they make a lot of phones, they make a lot of stuff on in Taiwan. That's the free China, not the communist China, the, the big commies on the mainland. But now it turns out that Apple has agreed to kowtow to the Chicom masters in Beijing because they're telling suppliers in Taiwan, take off the made in Taiwan you're putting on the products that were made in Taiwan and mark them made in China because that makes the folks in Beijing happy. And I'm wondering what we should make of a big technology company. As I said, I think they're literally the biggest company in the world, you know, for total market uh, value and all that. They got a ch pile of money in the bank and, you know, they can buy just about anything they want. And now they're telling little free China to relabel their products as made in communist China uh, because they're afraid of angering, you know, the communists. Yeah, Lars, and the specifics here are, are, are slightly less uh, dramatic than you paint them out to be. Uh, made in Taiwan oh, is one option. There's also, yeah, well, I mean, you're going to laugh when you hear the, the explanation. Chinese Taipei or Taiwan China are the other options that they can label these in. Uh, it's really kind of a difficult situation to fully understand. Now, this has actually been a rule for some time. It's been a law that has been enacted by the Chinese government saying if these products are brought into China, they have to have these labels on them. And the real question is, what should Apple do? 
do in this situation? Should they uh, kowtow, as you describe, uh, should they bend over to this this regime, or should they simply put the label on these products and hope that really nobody notices and kind of just sweep it under the rug. It's like, okay, well, this is what the microchip on the back of the product is going to say, and nobody's really going to um, use that as a, as a deciding factor, if you will, when they buy a new iPhone. It's an awkward situation. Why now is really my question. Why are they, after years of this being a rule, are they saying, oh, we should actually probably comply with this? That's the bigger question, and is uh, what's, what's going on behind the scenes is what I'd like to know uh, to make Apple all of a sudden seemingly uh, change the labeling on these products. Well, and, and here's what I think, uh, because this does go into why does this matter now? Because an awful lot of us are saying, I don't like the communist Chinese government of China. I've got nothing against the Chinese people, but the folks who run that country are an evil bunch. I mean, they're a bunch who sometimes use prisoners for organ transplant raw material. They've locked up a couple of million Muslim Uyghurs in prison camps and used them as slave labor. In fact, American products are now uh, made made by slave labor in China in some cases, even though America has a law that says you can't import products made with slave labor. Unless, of course, it's China, in which case we forget all about the rules. And then a lot of Americans might want to say, I'm going to take a look for that label. And if I understand the difference between free China, Taiwan, and not-so-free China, mainland communist bunch, um, then I'm going to choose to make my purchases. Uh, even, a, even a company might say, if we can buy it from either place, Let's buy it from the freedom-loving place instead of the uh, the place that locks people up in in slave camps uh, by, by the by the ten by the millions and and that people might make that qualitative choice. But if the Chicoms say, well, because of the export rules and all that, we're going to make you relabel stuff so that nobody can tell the difference. I could see why they want to do that because they might sense that the time is going to come where if China rattles its sword enough, threatens Taiwan enough, acts badly toward the rest of the world enough, you know, launches enough viruses that cause pandemics enough, that a lot of Americans who are some of the best consumers on the planet might just say, hey, China, pound sand, I'm not buying your stuff anymore, I'll buy it from Taiwan. Unless China bullies American companies like Apple, and I would suggest Apple's response should have been, hey, China, pound sand. We're not going to tell people to lie by putting a lie on the product saying it was made in China when it was made in Taiwan because there's a, all, there's a huge difference. And Americans, uh, I might point out, have, pointed, have, have taken this to heart, Brian, West, uh, uh, diamonds, blood diamonds, right? People, yeah. Many people walk in and say, I want to buy a diamond ring you know, for an engagement or whatever, and, uh, but I'm not buying a blood diamond. I will not buy unless it's certified as not produced by slave labor somewhere. I don't want to buy it. The Chinese may have looked at that and said, well, we got to protect ourselves from that because we need to use slave labor. I think uh, we're, we're looking at an awkward situation here because as consumers, we don't have a lot of choice unless you buy these products that are made over there. Uh, they're looking at Indian manufacturing. They're looking at Brazilian manufacturing. But it's really uh, a drop in the bucket compared to the volume of being able to manufacture these electronics. I think in some cases, we as consumer have the choice. Do we want the new iPhone or do we want to, uh, to to sort of hold true to these values that you mentioned? I also, I, I, I have to say, I love that it's Conspiracy Theory, is theory <laughs> Thursday, because I, I think I heard a couple of them in there, Lars, from uh, from that, that ex- explanation. But it is an awkward situation. It's one that all electronic companies are really trying to face now, because as we know, there's a global chip shortage. You have to get these chips from somewhere. 
And if you can't get them from one market, you have to look at diversifying in other markets. And I think every electronics manufacturer, car maker, phone maker, computer maker is looking at how to do exactly that on a global scale. Well, see, that's what because, you know, I, I hate to use some of the language used by the left, although I know you're a little different than me politically. But they always talk about being a conscious consumer and, you know, considering sure. all the implications of what you buy. OK, great. Here's a good opportunity. Stop buying from the communist Chinese who use slave labor and treat their own people like cannon fodder and buy instead from a free country that runs its, you know, runs its government much the way we do here, except for the cheating in the elections. I don't think they've they've learned that part of it just yet. But, you know, this this is an opportunity for consumers to say, I will buy from ROC. I I will not buy from PROC, except except one big company when, when the Chinese government says, hey, Apple, will you lie on the product and have it labeled as made in China when it was not made in China, which screws up the ability of consumers to be those thoughtful, you know, considerate consumers who who know what they're buying and where it's from. Once again, I think the buyer beware. We have to do more of our research. We have to be more aware of those products and where they actually come from. And I should also point out, we're probably not tearing apart an iPhone to look at the chips. But when we do tear down these products and we do take them apart, we need to find out where these products are coming from so we can make these decisions. Okay, one of these days, Brian, I hope that I can walk into a cell phone store and say, I want to see the ones made in Taiwan. I don't want to buy one from commie China because that's not the case now. But you remember the, all the days of uh, dolphin free tuna when you'd walk into mm -hmm, the store yeah. and they go, I'm not buying tuna unless it's dolphin free. If it doesn't say dolphin free. On, and, and, you know, that was an important issue. OK, so in this case, you say, I want to buy a laptop or I want to buy an iPad, but I don't want to buy one made in communist China because those people, uh, the, the government there is evil. And if you if you are denied that choice because American companies like the Apple cult decide to kowtow to the commies, then we don't get that choice. Brian Westbrook, you can find what he writes at brianwestbrook.com. He is our tech expert. Back with your calls in a moment. 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. This segment of the show brought to you by Call 811. Call 811 before you dig, whether it's in your yard or in the field. It's the law. Call 811 to know what's below or go to digsafelyoregon.com for details. Glad to be with you and glad always to take your phone calls. I have a bonus day today. I've actually got two naysayers, so I had to kind of flip a coin and pick one of them. David is the lucky guy for starters. Hey, David, welcome to the program. We always put naysayers first. What do you and I do? disagree about today appreciate you being lucky today Lars, and thank you very much for taking this call you bet uh, i just want to say that i don't think it's the federal government i don't think it's the state government i don't think it's the local government's job to tell you what you and your doctor decide to do in a doctor's office i think it should be left up to the individual if you don't want to get an abortion don't get an abortion that's not your right to tell somebody else not to it's not my right as a citizen to say i'd like the government to make it illegal to kill someone because I think it's, it's a killing. good idea to have a law against killing it's not people. Killing. It's not killing. It's not killing? What happens to no. the baby that, that is taken it's out of a, a mother's womb? It's not a baby. When does it become a baby? Fetus. When does when it become outside. a baby? It's like magma David. lava. It's magma when it's inside. It's lava when it's outside. No, but David, David, it's and a meteorite isn't a meteorite till it hits the ground. It's a meteor. And before that, it's exactly. an asteroid. We can argue about definitions of words, but tell me this. When does that baby become a baby? When it's outside the body. When it's outside the body. 
Hmm. Yes. So up to that moment, it's not a baby. Up to that moment, you have every right to decide what does and does not grow inside your body. Boy, am I glad that a majority of Americans disagree with you. Actually, they don't. Actually, I've looked at the polls. They do. Now, if you say, do you what want poll? abortion outlawed? Absolutely. You can show me one poll. Can... I can show you a different poll. Polls okay. mean nothing. Well, no, but you know what does mean something? Life means something. And, David, you and I will just have to respectfully disagree. I think that baby is a baby. And I've never once congratulated a woman on her fetus. I have congratulated her. Wow, that's wonderful. You're a mother. You're going to have a baby. Have you chosen a name yet? But let's go to another naysayer. Hey, Ray, welcome to the program. What do you and I disagree about today? Well, you know, I don't know if it's so much a disagreement, it's more of an observation. As someone that's listened to your show off and on for quite some time, I think it's safe to say during the last two years, you've often had callers on your show, and you've also talked about body autonomy and how it's inappropriate for our government to force a vaccine on people and even potentially strip their job from them if they don't cooperate with the vaccine. That is correct. Now, you, often talk about, you often talk about how the Democrats, if they didn't have double standards, they yeah. wouldn't have any standards at all. Right. Please explain to me how you, not wanting anyone to be forced to have a vaccine, can you please tell me how it's any different to force a woman for, to put her through an unwanted pregnancy? Yes. To me, it just seems completely hypocritical. No, not at all. Because when a doctor, when a government says to its citizens, you have to take this vaccine, they are saying this to people who are adults, because we have a different set of rules for children. And we say to those adults, you must take this medicine. And a citizen has a right to say no. What say does the baby, the unborn baby get in whether or not that baby's life is ended or not? Well, I think in my eyes, I don't consider it a life until it's born, and I think a woman should have a right to choose what she Why does. Is it, okay, do then, then help body. me draw the distinction. Why does it become a life the moment it's born? How does it change from five minutes before it's born to five minutes after? Because there are Democrats who are arguing that even after the baby is born for at least a period of days, maybe even weeks, you should still be able to get rid of the baby if it's inconvenient to you. I, I heard that talking point with the previous caller. It's I not a talking point. It's, it's Governor Ralph Northam, among on, other people. Regardless a guy named, of political leanings, most people don't think that way. You're taking the craziest, dumbest thing. Well, actually, I'll tell you what. You're trying, to hold, weeks, you're trying to hold that against Ray, everybody. Ray, I'm going to give you an example. Two, two weeks ago in the state of Maryland, they introduced a bill that would allow you to take the life of the baby for up to 28 days after it was born. So when you say it's a talking point, no, it's actually a Democrat proposal for a law in a state. That's more than a talking point. I can take something crazy from one Republican and say every Republican thinks that way. I think most people are not going to agree with that one Democrat's viewpoint. Well, there's more than one Democrat who are I'm pushing asking the you, I'm asking you, why yes. is it different? If you're for... It's different because you're talking about... take a vaccine, because, because what, you're what's talk, the difference here? Because you're talking about an adult making a medical decision about their own body. Now, if that baby, the unborn baby, was an adult and said, oh, I don't mind if you killed me, I guess you could say, well, the baby has a right to end its own life. But in most states, Ray, if you want to talk about what most people believe... Most states don't think that taking your own life is legitimate, and they've made it illegal. A few states have made it pseudo-legal, like but most Oregon, states... Oregon is pseudo-legal. <laughs> well, yeah, Oregon says that 
a doctor can help you kill yourself, but only as long as the doctor doesn't actually put his hands so on, we all on use you. Like their own pets when they get kind of passive. Yeah, is there a difference, yeah. Ray, between a pet and a baby human being? I, I just think it's not my business. If a woman wants to not have a child, if she doesn't feel that she's ready to have a child, I think it's quite messed up to force her to have that child. So she That's doesn't owe point. anything to that human being. That you, does she owe any uh, uh, you know, duty? Man, of, I drive by the freeway. I drive by the freeways all the time in Portland, just like you do. And obviously, people don't care about those lives. They've obviously made bad decisions to maybe end up where we are. But I think where we're living in the world, I think it's obvious. They made that choices humanity as adults. And once again, Ray, you've drawn a distinction between an unborn baby who gets no choice whatsoever and an adult human being who decides to smoke methamphetamine, smoke, uh, you know, crack cocaine or, or to smoke fentanyl or to shoot heroin. And you're trying to equate that with an unborn baby who's done absolutely nothing wrong. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.